Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We are working our way into and eventually through the first chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. What have we seen so far? We have seen in verse 1 a customary salutation. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A customary salutation. The salutation is the opening of the epistle. And in his usual style, and according to the epistolary style of his day, Paul in the salutation identified the author, Paul, the recipients, the church of the Thessalonians, along with a greeting, grace to you and peace. Then Paul moved in verses 2 and 3 to a customized giving of thanks. Not so much the customary giving of thanks, although generally there would be a short expression of thanks to the pagan deities at the beginning of a non-Christian letter. But Paul gave a customized giving of thanks in which he directed his thanks to the Christian God, but he communicated his prayer of thanks to the Thessalonian believers. He wasn't thanking them, he was thanking God for them. His thanksgiving was to God, but he reported on that to them. He reported on his prayers and the prayers of the missionary team for them so that they would know that he was thankful for them, but he communicated that thanksgiving to God because he gave God the glory. He gave God the credit for what had, has taken place and is taking place in the lives of these believers. And what he is thanking God for more than anything else is the abundant evidences of spiritual life, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, the faith, hope, and love that are found in your lives, a faith that produces good works, a love that motivates good deeds, a hope that produces endurance. And what Paul is thanking God for is that in these people he sees evidence of living faith. That is an evidence of true saving faith. And he gives God thanks for that. And he tells them what, why he gives God thanks for them. But the remainder of chapter 1 is taken up with assurances of divine election. Uh-oh. Yep. That's what comes next. Thank you for joining me on this Tuesday, February 27. Thank you for helping us financially to continue teaching God's Word on this station. An assurance of divine election is the third section and the longest section of chapter 1. The first chapter is only 10 verses, so 
Verse 1 is the salutation. Verses 2 and 3 is the giving of thanks. And then verses 4 through 10 are assurances of divine election. Notice how this opens. Verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, when you get into the Bible teaching on election, God's choosing, God's electing people unto salvation, a very touchy subject, a very controversial subject, a very debated subject, and one that is found in the Bible more regularly, more repeatedly than many people are aware, but you don't need too many places to to be assured that this is what the Bible teaches and that in fact is true. You shouldn't need too many places if you are a Bible-believing Christian. If you really believe, as nearly every Christian says he believes, that whatever the Bible says is so. Whatever the Bible says, I believe. Whatever the Bible says, whether I understand it or not, I accept that as truth. But when it comes to this doctrine of election, there are an awful lot of people that say something like, wait a minute, that can't be. That can't be. That would contradict, and boy, they start their, their reasons why what the Bible seems to say about election can't be what it actually means about election, because that would contradict oh, a number of things. But, but primarily, it would contradict man's free will. It would contradict man's choice. It would contradict the genuine offer of the gospel to every person without distinction. It would contradict the whole concept of evangelism and so forth and so on, come the objections. And none of those objections have any true substance to them or biblical warrant to them when you really understand what the Bible teaches about election. So many times what people object to about the doctrine of election is what they have heard other people say about it and what they have been told that the people who believe election believe about it that turn out actually not to be true. Now we're going to get into this because that's what come next, comes next in this chapter. So we're going to get into it, but before we get into it, let me say that I wrestled mightily with the doctrine of election for a number of years. I grew up in a Christian home. I was raised in church, good Bible-believing churches all of my life, all of my life. I attended a fine Christian school for a good part of my education from 7th grade through 12th grade, went to a Christian university, and even went beyond that into into seminaries, you would expect that to be Christian, and came out of that still not accepting the doctrine of election. Because most of the preachers under whose ministry I had been saved, had been called to preach, had been taught scripture, had been helped mightily, did not accept the Bible doctrine of election. Most of them. It's hard to tell sometimes. Most of the Christians that I fellowshiped with did not accept the doctrine of election. 
most of the teachers that I had in school did not accept or believe the doctrine of election. So it's almost like if all these good people, and they are good people, fine, Bible-believing, committed, unselfish, loving, sacrificing Christians, evidencing all of the the evidences that Paul is talking about here in the Thessalonian church, faith that produces good works, love that motivates good deeds, hope that produces endurance, all of those things were were characteristic of the people that I grew up, that, that grew up, that were around me as I grew up. And yet very few of them seemed to embrace the doctrine of election. I actually realize now, looking back, that no doubt some of them did, but in those circles, it was pretty controversial, and maybe it was better just to not say anything about it than to talk about it and have yourself in an argument all the time. I don't know if the person that I'm going to make reference to now is listening at this time, but if, if he is, he'll know who I'm talking about. It's been uh, quite a few weeks ago now that a particular individual came by for a very short visit at the church, and I noticed that he had a... Uh, a, a brace on his wrist, and I said, what happened there? <laughs> he said, well, I got into a fight with a Calvinist, and I lost. Oh, yes. But he was laughing about it. And I laughed about it. I laughed. I, I let out a great big belly laugh when he said that. But, uh, but I'm saying I understand why many people find it difficult, find it challenging, find it troubling, to, to accept at face value what the Bible teaches about election, because how could that be true if so many of the Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, so many of the preachers, so many of the teachers that I have who are godly people don't believe it? it there must be something here that they know that I don't know, that they see that I don't see. Yes, it seems to be teaching that, but it can't be, can't be right, or all of these godly people would believe it. And it's true, all of these godly people should believe it, and many of them will come to believe it in time. I could tell you some stories about that, some wonderful accounts of people who, for many years, decades, did not embrace this doctrine, and then one day they, they saw the light, and they now embrace it enthusiastically. So that does happen, but it's, it's a struggle. Because it is sometimes difficult to reconcile, on the one hand, God's sovereignty and salvation, and that, of course, is what we're talking about when we're talking about the doctrine of election, and the Bible teaching on the responsibility of man. If God is sovereign, then how is man responsible? How could God hold man responsible if salvation is entirely a matter of a sovereign act of God? if it is according to his electing grace, then how can God hold men responsible for their rejection of Christ and so forth? So I understand how these things seem to be difficult, and yet I, I insist that the, the explanations that most people fall back on in order to avoid coming face-to-face -face with the clear teaching of 
divine election to salvation in the Bible, that their explanations aren't any better. (laughs) They aren't any better than what the Bible teaches. In fact, they're far worse. Their attempts to avoid it themselves all break down into into, uh, unbiblical and illogical conclusions. So just better to do something like this. Say, if the Bible teaches it, I believe it. If the Bible says it, I believe it. I don't understand it fully. I can't understand it fully, but I can't deny it. It's what the Bible says. And hopefully in time, I'll have a better understanding of it and a better ability to reconcile, at least in part, these seemingly competing doctrines of the sovereignty of God and salvation and the responsibility of man and salvation, or in or in all things, salvation plus other things. I hope I'll come to a better understanding of it in time, but in the meantime, I will accept what the Bible teaches and just commit it to the Lord. If God says it, I believe it, even if I don't understand it. And that's the way we have to do with many doctrines in the Bible, right? The Bible doesn't tell us to believe something if we can understand it, to believe something if we agree with it, to believe something if we can figure out how to make it so that it doesn't conflict with anything else. We are called upon to believe what God reveals in his word, whether we understand it or not, whether we can explain it or not, whether we can work out all the details of it or not. We're called upon to believe it if God says it. Whatever the Bible says is so. God said it. I believe it. That settles it is a good motto because that's exactly the case. And so we're going to get into this doctrine of election as taught by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But we'll have to come back tomorrow to do so. Please join me on the broadcast tomorrow. Until then, this is Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.